The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things as man looks at things. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called in Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is there tending sheep. Samuel said, Well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and with handsome features. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So, this is my last in three that I've done as a little block before I, I start college tomorrow. And um, the guy's very kind, going to protect me a bit. Um, so they thought they'd just tie me out before I start. Um, <laughs> good, good planning. Um, we're looking today, um, I don't know if you remember, still in our series um, entitled Trouble in Paradise. We're talking about how the Israelites um, lost the, the promised land, how they, they were taken to exile. It's a response to uh, some of the home group stuff we did in Lamentations. Uh, some people asked, well, you know, how did they get to that kind of mess? We talked uh, a bit about Saul. Um, we talked a bit about the people uh, choosing a king um, and rejecting God. And we're going to talk today about the high point in Israel, which is King David. Um, and, and just hopefully, I, I pray you'll be challenged um, as I've been as I've studied this. Um, I'm going to make something very clear. Um, if you had one of your sermon programs, you saw there was a number of passages uh, listed. And some of you, I'm sure, were wary of coming tonight, thinking that I was going to attempt in my, my normal muddledy fuddledy way to try and mess my way through six or seven passages and you may have been more nervous when you saw 1 Samuel as the, the reading um, because <laughs> that's a fair chunk look, here's the bottom line Okay, I'm going to try and be helpful as I can tonight but, but I challenge you to go home and read just go and read uh, from 1 Samuel 16 um, which is where David's anointed just read it through um, until you get to kind of 2 Samuel uh, 5, 6 and 7 because I, I can't teach you all of it in 20 or so minutes. 
Uh, I'm not going to try. In, in one sense, tonight, it's going to feel like I'm skipping through uh, quite a lot. I'm doing that deliberately, but in one sense, sorrowfully, because it would be great if I could just read it to you. There's some just amazing um, kind of displays of God's power, um, the way that God's plan unveils through the kind of the sinfulness of people through these army commanders that are the kind of power behind the throne and, and there are murders and there are killings and there is deceit and there are fights. It, it's, it's Beth and Lord of the Rings. Okay, Just go home and read 1 Samuel uh, 16 onwards. Uh, you'll learn far more than by listening to me. It doesn't mean you can switch off now because that would just be rude. Um, but, but just go home. Can you promise me that? Because... You know, two reasons. It's good to read our, our Bibles. Um, hopefully it's going to come across today. Uh, but, but secondly, there's, there's too much there for me to, to try, and, try and help you see. So we're looking at how God's people lost the promised land. We saw how the people chose earthly kings and idols. Do you remember there was that bit where, where God said to Samuel, it's not you they've rejected, but me. We, we talked about that. And we talked about how we often in our lives choose other things to follow, other kings, other idols. And that's the first step to losing the promised land. The people do that time and time and time again, just going off after other things rather than sticking with the king that has brought them to the promised land, breaking them out of Egypt, all that good stuff we talked about. We, we saw how Saul was picked as this guy that was head and shoulders above everyone else. This, this great kingly-looking man, we saw how he failed. Do you remember we talked about him being a warrior, how actually he trusted more in his own strength, his own kind of physicality to, to, to get things done. We, we talked about... This, this really key bit where he was told to wait for seven days before Samuel came to offer sacrifices. Do you remember that if you were here? And can you remember what he did? Great, we're on a winner. Um, he offered the sacrifice himself. And, and in that classic way that always happens, mum caught him just as he'd done it. We talked about that. Samuel comes in and says, Saul, what have you done? Do you remember what Saul did then? Can you remember from my, my talk before I walked out this door here? I mean, he blamed everyone else. There were those five things he blamed. Samuel, you were late. The people were, were getting nervous. The Philistines were coming. Do you remember all that stuff? Um, just because I know there was Pulse last week, and Adam did a fine job apparently, but you know, I want you to try and get back on track. Let's wake you up a little bit. Here's a quick experiment. There are three identically aged boys about to appear on the screen behind you. Can you see them? Handsome fellas. The one in the middle is not related to me. Um, who would you say, and I want you to discuss with a partner or just someone near you, who would you say is most trustworthy from those three? Who would you say is most trustworthy? Can you, just don't, don't be all like Guardian readers and go, well, of course you can't tell, they're just photos. Um, just have a chat with me. Who do you think is most trustworthy? Can you have a quick discussion, please? Who is most trustworthy? Okay, just 10 seconds. Snap judgment, please. Okay, stop there. Stop there. Okay. Um, this one's number one. The middle one's number two. The guy on the left or your right is number three. Give me a quick vote. Who's most trustworthy? Number one, raise your hand. Most trustworthy. Now, without being a bit naughty here, how many of you went, well, of course think the white guy, but I'm going to say the black guy because that's what Paddy wants me to say. Anyone, anyone do that? Are you promise? Middle guy? Trustworthy. Okay. 
Number three? Trustworthy. We've got five. Five. Any reasons why he's not trustworthy? Rob, you had your hand up. Just had a pick on you. Oh, he, he's got trustworthy eyes. How many of you said because he's looking off camera, he looks a bit shifty? Anyone say that? Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Okay, uh, just a couple more. Just come interested. Um, which one of these three would you think would be most fun at a dinner party? Which of these three do you think would be most fun at a dinner party? Don't, don't do this. No, I'm not going to do it. It's a bit of fun, but there is a point. Who is going to be most fun at a dinner party? Um, don't shout. Let's have a discussion. But I'm loving your keenness, Matilda. Beautiful. You've got one, two, and three. Most fun at a dinner party. with me, I know some of you aren't sure yet, but if you were listening to the reading, there should be a point that's coming out of this. Number one, most fun at a dinner party. He looks a bit like the guy of Scrubs, I reckon, but um, number one. Don't don't be shy, raise your hands. Okay, seven, in the middle. Most fun at a dinner party. Popular choice. So so he's most trustworthy. This is the guy that's most fun. Anyone else dinner party fun? No? Okay, okay. Interesting. Uh, One more discussion. One more discussion. Which two of these men are convicted offenders? Okay, have a quick discussion. I'm not going to ask you for answers, that would be naughty, but quick discussion, have a quick discussion. Two of these men are convicted offenders. Three seconds. Okay, I'm not going to ask your feedback because I'm genuinely telling you the truth. Two of these guys, two of these guys are convicted offenders. Um, I'm not going to tell you, they're not British, just so you know. Um, Mr. Trustworthy, Mr. Most Fun at Dinner Parties, convicted offenders. Convicted offenders. This guy, professional model. He's on an Asian hairstyle modelling website if you want to check him out. So he's the only one that's working. Um, Inter- interest. Isn't it interesting? I didn't even fix it. I, I, you know, I feel like Darren Brown. Ah, you picked the ones I wanted you to pick. But there's a challenge, isn't there? Because appearances do matter. We make snap judgments all the time in life. I don't know how much or little you would say that appearances don't matter to you. And I know that this is a very artificial situation. You had to pick, I forced you. Most of you would have said, oh, I can never tell. I can never tell. But when pushed, it's interesting, isn't it, that you you pick the two that are convicted offenders. You can tell they both are as well, because both eyes, this is a, the police photos, um, just to let you know, that's why they're both looking at the screen. Um, it's true, it's true. How much does the way someone look uh, affect the way you feel about them? How much, how much do you care about your appearance? I guess the, the big theme tonight, we're going to talk about a couple of different things, but my first thing we're going to talk about is that, that if God doesn't look at things like man looks at things, but looks at the heart, I'm going to try and challenge you. Uh, a bit about that. Uh, we read it in our passage um, from 1 Samuel 16, and there's this key verse tonight which is going to come up on the screen. It says, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Saul, we talked about last time, had the outward appearance of a king, but he was unfaithful, disobedient, 
and, and a warrior. We talked about that quite a bit. It, it culminated in, in when God gave him a di- direct order to go and destroy the Amalekite people, a people who, when the Israelites were coming into the Promised Land, had attacked them and made it difficult for them. God said, go and wipe them out completely, a command that is hard to read, but is pretty simple. King Saul took his army, did it, but kept the king, King Agag, alive, kept the best of the sheep, the animals, the the flocks. There's a great scene, if you read it when you get home, where, where Samuel arrives. He says, Saul, how did it go? And Saul says, great. And the direct quote from the Bible, Samuel says, what's all this bleating I hear? You get this great picture of the sheep behind, who God had ordered to be slaughtered. Sheep from a a, a nation that didn't follow God, who were disobedient to him. Saul proudly there saying, well, I've kept them to offer to God. On the outside, a very religious thing to do, but you can tell there was a bit of greed going on because the soldiers grabbed them to keep for themselves. He's kept King Agag to, to make himself look great, to, to say, I've brought him before you. Samuel cuts King Agag to pieces and says, God told you to destroy them utterly. King Saul, who had the look of a king, disobedient to the last. And at that point, Samuel says, Saul, Saul, I love you as a king. I was proud to pick you, but God has chosen someone else. Saul breaks down, grabs Samuel's robe as Samuel leaves. Samuel turns to him and says, that bit of cloth that you're holding, that fragment in your hand, that's what God's done from you. He's torn from you the kingdom and he's given it to someone else. And I talked a bit about X Factor last time. This is the the clear X Factor picture. Remember this we talked about. Who will be king? You'd think Samuel would have learned, didn't you? Can you remember why Samuel picked Saul? Because of his physical appearance, his strength, his height. He gets before this, this family in Bethlehem. That should be ringing bells with you. We're coming up to Christmas. Bethlehem isn't an accidental place for a king to come. In David, we see pictures and foreshadowing of Jesus. He's going to appear born in Bethlehem because he comes from David's line. We're going to finish on that tonight. It all makes sense. This scripture is not a random collection of battle stories. It's just awesome the way God is weaving his plans into play. Samuel goes there. The brother's passed before him. It's a reader's nightmare in church. Abinadab. All those names. I practiced very hard so I wouldn't say something naughty or wrong. Samuel says, surely Iliad the first, the strongest, the biggest boy, surely he is the king. Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. But God said this. As a lesson, as a challenge, as a follow-up to what happened with Saul, God said this. We're guilty of this. I proved it with a simple puzzle. I know you're forced to do it, but we're guilty of this, aren't we? Judging by appearance, both people and situations. And yet, I want to kind of offer you three things, just, just from this, just really briefly. There's, there's a challenge, firstly. Because if God sees past your outward appearance, if he looks down on you now, sat in church, to the rest of the world, doing the right the good things. Neil this morning at Cornerstone talked about this kind of dry religiosity that was doing the right things but but your heart not being right. If God looked at you now and saw your heart, what would he say? Because this passage is a massive challenge, isn't it? If God doesn't look at the outward appearance but looks at the heart, it means he looks at your heart this evening. Not the appearance you give to church, not the fact that you're on every road to going, not the fact that you can be proud of your attendance record over the last 14 years. He doesn't look at that. He doesn't look at your reputation in church. 
He doesn't look at your family line. He doesn't look at uh, how many Bibles you have on your shelf gathering dust at home. He looks at your heart. If God looks at your heart this evening, what does he say? That's a challenge, isn't it? Because men and women, we look at the outward appearance and things look fine. And in church, it's great that way because we don't have to get deep with each other. We don't have to ask challenging questions. We don't have to actually say to each other, you look a bit like you're struggling, what's going on? The most common response at the door, how are you doing? Okay. Okay means a billion different things. And then people leave church and say, well, you never cared for me, I was going through this. You know, we never know. Okay is a rubbish word. You know, let's be honest with each other. It's a challenge, isn't it? Your heart condition. God picks David because he looked at his heart. It's still interesting though, isn't it? If you look at the end, um, verse 12, so, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. They sent for David and brought him in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Still that external stuff going on. Can you see that? I I find that really interesting. If God looks at the heart, why is that in there? I still challenge you to to, to be challenged by the fact that God looks at your heart this evening. I think there's a massive encouragement there as well because in life, we often see things in a very short-term way. I'm, I'm massively pleased to be in my new house in Tame. There were, there were moments in time where I doubted it would ever happen. I, I sat there and said, God, send me to Tame. I feel, I feel that it's right for us as a family. I'm excited about this church thing. I want to be living among the people I'm going to minister to. And it's never going to happen. Where are the tenants? All these people come to look at my house and because my gardening's not up to scratch, they don't like rice for that long at all because Zach leaves his toys out. We're never going to find a tenant. And yet I move, three days before college. Well in enough time for Claire to be settled and build a nest for our new baby. You know, God's timing is perfect, isn't it? And that means that because God looks beyond just the external stuff that you and I see, because God looks beyond just the temporary and sees into infinitum, that means we can trust him, can't we? Because if God looks beyond the outward appearance and sees the heart of things, if stuff happens to you that you don't understand, and that's getting you worried and anxious and concerned, you can call out to God as David does time and time and time again and say, God, be my strength in this. Show me where to go. That's an encouragement, isn't it? That when life is tough and things are hard, because God looks beyond the outward appearance and sees the heart, we can trust him. Here's a question, though, just briefly, as we move on to our next slide. Which do you spend more time developing? Okay, which do you spend more time developing? What I mean by that is, do you spend more time with your outward appearance or with your heart condition? Okay, I, would, I was at this point going to do a quick show of hands. Who took half an hour to get ready for church? Who, who, who had a dilemma as to what outfit to wear? How many of you thought, well, if I wear that, I'm going to look a little bit too, you know. Um, I, I don't know. How, how many of you took the time, and I'm not trying to guilt trip you because I, I didn't, um, how many of you took the time to pray as you came to church? To say, Father God, I, I'm going there. I know Pat is speaking. I'm going to pray for him hard. Uh, I pray you prepare me as I go. I pray for the worship team as they lead us, that they would be inspired by you. You know, how, how, how much time do you spend? Was it more time doing your hair in a mirror or, or actually seeking to come to God? You know, it, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because I know in my life I spent more time picking out my shirt than I did writing my sermon. I'm joking. Um, it took me ages to pick out the shirt. 
So, to finish really, I guess, as we kind of come into land, um, surely you'd want a heart like God's heart. Because David is described as having a heart that is after God's own heart. That's why God picks him. God looks at David and says, this man has a heart that's after my own heart. I'm going to kind of fly through this fairly quickly, but just to compare Saul and David, we see something quite interesting. Saul was a warrior. Remember that? We talked about that. Saul was a warrior. And a few of you, I could tell, were kind of smirking, kind of uncomfortable in your seat if I said that, because you realise that you were warriors too. And I challenged you that that faith in God was the outworking of faith inside, that, that trust rather than worry. David's patient. David's patient because we're going to look at three very kind of quick passages where, where David gets anointed three times as king. Normally he'd get anointed once. We've just read one in, in 1 Samuel 16, if you were listening. Uh, Samuel got the boy in and poured the oil over him, anointed him. That didn't make him king. Saul was still alive very much. Saul was still in charge of Israel very much. Saul was bigger and stronger very much. This is before David and Goliath, if you know your, your Sunday school stories which was where David started to get fame with the people. But he was an unknown shepherd boy. How is David going to become king? Uh, yeah, that's why I want you to go home and read it, because it's amazing how David is taken to, to go and work for Saul, a, a man who he's working for, who he's been anointed to be king instead of. It's, it's amazing the way that God makes this thing happen. David was patient. There are times where, where Saul just hated and became jealous of David. As David became popular among the people, as his character evidently showed that he was God's chosen one, Saul becomes jealous and bitter and angry and chases him, deciding to kill him. Twice, David had the opportunity to kill Saul. Once in a cave, once when Saul was sleeping. Saul was quick to take matters into his own hand. God, you said this is going to happen, I'm going to make it happen now. David says, I can't kill the Lord's anointed, talking of Saul. He was patient. The time was not right. In 1 Samuel 26, 9 to 10, he enters the camp. And he says, surely the Lord will strike down Saul one day. David even has to go and live with the Philistines for a bit to hide from King Saul. You always thought the Philistines and the Israelites were enemies. Read about it. David goes and hides with them because the situation gets so bad. Never complains, never doubts, is always patient. God has chosen me, anointed me to be king over Israel. It will happen in God's timing. Saul was a warrior, David was patient. That's your first lesson. If you're looking for a heart that's after God's heart, I challenge you to think about the fact that an obedient and patient heart, a patient heart is what we're looking for. Saul ignored God's word a lot. Do you remember that? We talked about that. He kept ignoring the instruction. He made up his own kind of way. David was obedient. David was obedient. God asked David to go and kill the Amalekites, the nation that Saul had not quite finished off, and he did it, totally and utterly. After that, in, in, and you can flick with me just quickly now, to 2 Samuel 2. 2 Samuel 2. After that, and after a long time running, King Saul is killed in battle. Too many times ignoring God, too many times finishing up, to be honest, going to a medium and asking for the spirit of Samuel, who by this time has died, to be brought back. Saul, in a complete mess, is slain by the Philistines. Jonathan, his son, who David loves, is slain as well. Ish, another son, um, is, is taken to be king. 
But David is, is anointed. He's anointed by the people because of his victories against the Amalekites. He's gutted by Saul's death. In, in 2 Samuel 2, uh, we read this. Just read with me. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his own family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. This is the really key bit. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. He's had one anointing, this is his second. As king over a tribe, king over Judah. Saul from the smallest tribe, David in the biggest tribe. David, the youngest brother, Saul the biggest man. The opposites are, are clear to see. David, time and time again, being obedient and following God's word exactly. By following God's word, he's now king of a tribe. Not king over Israel, king of a tribe. God's working him up. Saul is dead, but he's not yet king over all of Israel. A heart that's after God's heart is an obedient heart. Not a heart that ignores God's word. Lastly, Saul and David, you can compare them very clearly. Saul was joyless. We read it in one of the passages that that he gets a, a spirit that makes him depressed and anxious. He was always fearful, always worried. In King David, though, we see something different. We see a, a man who, who loves to follow God. It, it culminates after he's been anointed uh, as king by, by this just amazing scene where he, he does become king. Um, just, just flick forward with me to 2 Samuel 5. And, and this is why I really want you to, to read this at home because I, I can't tell you all this stuff, but it's immense. In, in 2 Samuel 4... Um, Saul's other son, Ish-bosheth, is murdered. The road is now right for King David to take his rightful place. The throne of Israel is empty. I know some of you are finding this hard to deal with. It's a history lesson and you're going, I don't like this. Just go home and read it. I promise it's exciting and it's immense. David becomes king over Israel in 2 Samuel 5. You can read that as well. The tribes, just read with me. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past... While Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaign. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall become their ruler. When all of the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. The third anointing. God's plan comes into place. Anointed privately as the youngest son of shepherd boy. Anointed secondly as the king over Judah. Anointed thirdly as the king over all the people. After that, he defeats the Philistines. And after that, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He's he's conquered this holy city, a city where the temple would be built, where Jesus would be hung out to die on a cross. David conquers it, brings in a a kingdom, a a reign for Israel that is the promised land. Nothing that had been seen before was like this time. Riches, wealth, power. No enemy could stand before God's people. God led his people into battle and everyone fell before them. This was the promised land. This was the time. Solomon became rich, but this was the pinnacle of God's plan for the promised land. Israel at its strongest, at its, at its mightiest. How do, we, how do we see David? Is he just kind of there, kind of feeling smug with himself? Just, this is our last passage. 2 Samuel 6, uh, verse 14. And, and the youth group studied this in the week. 2 Samuel 6, 14. David wearing a linen ephod which is just like a a simple garment, danced before the Lord with all his might. 
while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, the wife of David, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. There's an expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Saul's own daughter despising a king who is dancing with all his might before the Lord. A heart that is after God is a joyful heart. You recognise all that God's done for you. There's a bit where David sits back and says, do you know what? I've been brought from a shepherd boy to king of Israel. I've been brought from infamous to, to the most famous leader of Israel that's going to be. My enemies are defeated before me. I can find rest. So here's a quick question for you. And um, just I want you to mull this for about 10 seconds before we just finish. How does your heart compare? Who are you most like? If David's is a heart that is after God's heart, if this is the sort of heart that God's looking for, which heart are you most like? That's my, my question for you this evening. That's the question. Just, just mulling it, just for, just for a few seconds. Because surely you want a heart that God looks at and says, that's a heart that's after my own heart. Surely. So some just quick applications for you. Hearts at rest. Go home and read it. 2 Samuel 7 is a covenant with David. God makes some specific promises to David. He says, David, I've brought you to this point for a purpose. You're going to reign as king. Your children will succeed you and reign as king. 2 Samuel 7 verse 10 says there'll be a place for Israel. He says, I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. He looks after his people there. That's what God's looking to give you tonight. Rest from the storm which is the world out there. He wants to bring you to a place of confidence and security in him. If you don't know God this evening, that's what God is offering you. Bringing you back to to what you were created to be. In verse 12, he promises David personally that his descendants would, would rise up. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. David promised what he desperately wants, a name that would live on famous and glorious but most, most of all and this is the thing why the Bible is such a treasure just read with me this is our last verse 2 Samuel 7 verse 13 he is the one who will build a house in my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he shall be my son just a great passage yeah talking about Solomon a little bit but talking about Jesus the most this Jesus that would come and be king for all time Born in Bethlehem, where, where, where we know David came from, because that's where his family roots were. Dying in Jerusalem, the city that David had himself captured and fortified and built a temple at, because that's how God's plan had to work. An offering at the temple. Curtains ripped in two because of what God's done. An amazing story. I challenge you to read it in those chapters and verses. God's unveiling plan for salvation worked out. To, to give Jesus, because we know our hearts are more like Saul than they are like David. We have hearts that worry, which are disobedient, and which are impatient. I I challenge you to to, to love Jesus all the more. Because David is is brought up as king, totally to provide a place where Jesus would die, where Jesus would reign, where Jesus would be unveiled as king. That's the the God I want to follow. A God who can look at my heart, not my outward appearance, and yet love me the same. That's the God I love and follow. I'm not this person. I'm not David. I'm a Saul. Time and time again I am Saul. I worry and I'm impatient and I'm lazy and I'm a sinful man. 
And yet because of this Jerusalem that, that David captures, because God's with him and had raised him up to do, I can stand boldly before my father and say, Father, you look at my heart and you love me the same. Thank you for sending Jesus. In Colossians 3, which the guys have been uh, going through in the mornings, you're going to read a verse this coming Sunday which says, set your hearts on things above. That's Colossians 3.1. Set your hearts on things above. Because you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Because God sees your heart. Don't set your outward appearance on things from above. Set your heart on things above. That's my challenge for you this evening. Thanks for listening. I know it's been fairly heavy, but, but just go home and read it. It's more exciting than I could ever do justice to. Just go home and read that, that passage and you'll see how God brings David from shepherd boy to mighty king.